1: Ladies and gentlemen,
0: can I please have your attention, Daniel (laughs) Digger Greetings to your listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media, come on by the Dispatch. Dot com and check out our wares and uh, maybe become a paid member of the dispatch community. If everybody who listened to this podcast became um, a member tomorrow, uh, we would be one of the most uh, successful and profitable media companies in America today. And um, I would like to do that sooner rather than later. Anyway, uh, enough of all that. Very excited to have a return guest he might be due the gold jacket we should have looked this up beforehand if not he is on the cusp of the gold jacket gold jacket um uh a fan favorite before the pandemic and then for some reason during the pandemic we didn't have him on and uh you know we're launching a major internal investigation as to why uh he might be known to some people as the um it's the, more, it's the biggest coincidence since Lou Gehrig was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease because David Bonson is the head of something called the Bonson Group. I believe the last time he was on here, it's a financial advisory firm, uh, it was had like two and a half billion dollars under management, and and now it has three. Um, he is also an old friend from NR World. He's currently on the NR National Review Board, and... Um, And he's the host of his own podcast. That may be why we've delayed in having him back on, because he decided to become competition. He's the host of the Capital Record Podcast, where he defends capital markets and capitalism and almost everything that begins with the word capital. Um, So, David Bonson, welcome back to The Remnant.
1: Well, it is so good to be back with you. Now, you know why you didn't have me on during COVID, is the last time you had me on, I started COVID.
0: That's right.
1: I was in Washington, D.C., and it was March the 10th. It was a Tuesday, and the market had gone down 1,000 points or so on the Monday, and then it went down 2,000 points on the Thursday. I flew back from New York to California on the Friday, and I didn't get to come back for three and a half months, and it was the very next week that all hell broke loose. But are you not counting when David French and I substituted together in your absence last summer that because oh. that was that was remnant wasn't it
0: that was remnant and i remember listening to that um in alaska yeah uh um so that might you know that 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 might have confused some of our scorekeepers um so we'll have to go back and recalibrate the data
1: so that um, would be this would be number five if you count that one is that gold jacket
0: i think that's gold jacket uh, I think that is indeed gold jacket. I, I will allow it, and I think you and might. Really, have been if you the-
1: give me, I think it's two points for the time we did it in your hotel room in, in, Grand, Rap- <laughs> <laughs> in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan.
0: That's fair too. That's fair too. Um, and I, now that I think about it, I, I completely spaced it. But you might be right. That might have been the last in studio episode of the last normal in-studio episode of The Remnant uh, since the outbreak of the pandemic. If not, it was like the second to last. I mean, it was...
1: So I cool. Actually, I need to get back um, to AEI because I need to apologize to Matt Continetti because you walked me around that day after we recorded and I stuck my hand out and I said, are you shaking hands? And I didn't wait for him to answer and I shook his hand <laughs> and immediately realized he did not want to shake hands. <laughs> and, and I was like, okay, I guess this thing is is getting real so there you go um and
0: and weirdly enough and i i don't think i deserve any credit for it but i'll take it anyway uh maybe that conversation inspired you to become something of like the sort of if stone of covid data analysis and you yeah. went you went maverick and solo and were one of like the go-to guys um to offer your own independent covid analysis uh you weren't, and uh, that can sound like you were in the fever swamp on one side or the other, but you weren't. You were just yeah. sort of, you know, keeping a compendium of the data and and looking at it in ways that had less to do with the group think. Um, so let's maybe just start very quickly with the COVID stuff. The pandemic is over, right?
1: Yes, it is. The pandemic what, what, is over. What metrics uh, in do in America? You base that it's on? over. It's over in America. Um, you know, you talk about the remnant and that position that you've been in, you know, since your principled stand on Trump many years ago, and just kind of where things are right now, and in, in the tribalization of our time. Try being an objective COVID analyst, <laughs> where where the Alex Berensons of the world think you're on their side, and and then the total hysteria, uh, fear mongering, everyone's going to die side thinks you're on their side, and you really believe very objectively that you're nowhere near on either of their sides. And eventually it kind, of, it kind of found that right audience. But it was very similar to things I've heard you say for years now about what you've been trying to do. I'll, all I can do is wake up every day and call balls and strikes. And I, I tried to grow in my knowledge of the strike zone. I, right. I tried to expand my intellectual capacity. I, th- I would say that pre-COVID, if I had taken a seventh grade biology class, I would have failed it. And I also would say that's apparently true of a lot of people that were (laughs) in charge of different things. But, um, you know, I learned more about uh, virology and all of this stuff uh, through the experience. But when I say it's over, um, the the metric is normalcy. Is there something by way of health conditions that um, should alter behavior out of normal? And so I obviously don't mean that there'll be no more sick people and no more deceased people. And I want to apply the same standard to COVID that every single one of us would apply to every single other thing. And so the idea of a fully risk-free society is not the goal. It wasn't the goal before COVID. It shouldn't have been the goal during COVID, and it's not the goal after. Uh, Data-wise, hospitalizations, um, it's how many zeros you have to have after the decimal. To get to the percentage that hospitalizations now occupy from COVID out of the 966,361 hospital beds that we have in our country. So there isn't like anything remotely close to an overwhelming of the healthcare system. There is, however, significant health damage by not resuming normalization, uh, mental health, emotional health, educational health, all these other things. I think that's been true for some time. But no, I was not uh, on the camp of, it's just like the flu, everything is fine. I, I, I tried my best. Uh, and and I'll wait um, for years to determine what the actually right things and wrong things were. But much like my never-ending criticism of the Fed, I'm not a good Fed critic. Because when I criticize them, I don't think they're all Satan. Right. I don't think they're all doing it to ruin the world or... or Uh, go celebrate secret banking deals at Jekyll Island or some other stuff like that. Um, I think the people that got things wrong and some people got things profoundly wrong, but I, and I mean this early on, I'm more critical Mm -hmm. of some of the stuff in the last few months, but early on, I think most of the criticism is launched against people who were probably earnest and well-meaning, but just were dealing with a very complicated and messy situation. Yeah. I want
0: to get to the more recent stuff in a second. Um, But just at a, you follow this on a more granular way than I did. Um, when I, I mean, it's I, like I, part. It's a two-part question: part factual, part ana- analytical. At the beginning of the pandemic, one of the things that I found really persuasive was the whole swamping of the healthcare system thing. Right, that was the you know that was the that was the real argument for shutdowns and masks and all of these things was that you didn't want to overwhelm hospital capacity because once you did that, it's like flooding the engine of your car and just the whole thing grinds to a halt and you got real problems and, and you saw those great, you know, bend the curve, bend the curve, all that kind of stuff. When did that stop being the primary rationale for, um, the public health industry, politicians, whatever. And, and why, I mean, why it's, it, it it feels like there was a bait and switch there. Like all of a sudden, once that stopped being the concern, they found out. They figured out another argument to say that we need to stick with these policies, even though these policies were sold to us as a bend the curve kind of thing. Am I mis- Am I mis? Misremembering mis-
1: that? No, you're exactly right. the problem in answering it is, I think it's a totally different answer for, like, say, Governor Newsom in California, and Governor Cuomo in New York, and and then maybe some of the CDC folks or National uh, Institute of Health folks. I think that. The federal bureaucrats had different objectives and, than the rankly political governors did. Um, one of the most interesting rivalries that took place was blue state on blue state um, rivalry, and they were competing not for who was doing the best job, but for who was doing the worst job. Like yeah. Newsom was really frustrated that he wasn't getting more COVID because <laughs> he couldn't. You can't be a hero if you don't have a problem to solve, and he wanted that heroic mythology that Cuomo was successfully obtaining at the time from the press. Um, But as far as the premise that it started as that rationale, and then it clearly kind of shifted over time, I don't think they just decided, okay, well, the public health system is not being overwhelmed. We've pulled the battleships out of the Hudson River. We are not turning Javits Center into a hospital. Central Park is no longer needed as a hospital, although, as you know, many very credible people at Q think it was never used as a hospital. It was used to move out sex slaves. And so there's a lot of things we really have to cover here if we're going to be fair and balanced. But I think that what happened is it shifted from this is the rationale to now we don't really know where to go with it. And the last thing you can say is we don't know where to go with it. But I do think it was earnest at first about the hospitalizations. And even if it wasn't, it was legitimate, but what I um, found out over the course of the summer when we had what they were calling the second wave, what was really the first wave in the states that just simply didn't get COVID before,
0: mm. and this
1: is the, the hindsight 2020 critique of lockdowns, is they were delaying the inevitable. There was no way. That genie was out of the bottle, and they were, people were going to have to get infected. Um, I think the malpractice in the media was that they never, ever, ever, ever told the story that exponentially less vulnerable people were now getting sick or getting infected. and 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 then, to the degree that in Florida, Arizona, and Texas, we heard all summer about hospitals getting potentially overrun, uh, I did something I've never done as a twenty plus year analyst and portfolio manager and and someone you know who has to kind of do a deep dive in research. I was just cold calling hospitals and getting on the phone with senior executives in Houston and in Austin and other places. And, um, what I found out was basically that it was true. Hospitals were near their capacity of ICU, except for one little thing. They had hundreds of other beds that could be converted to ICU beds at the flick of a switch. Mm -hmm. And so there was just a a kind of a lot of gamesmanship going on the way it was being reported. Um, but once the, the testing went up so much, the case number went up so much, I think there was a business model at play. Uh, I, I don't mean to be overly cynical, but that daily kind of reporting of how many cases were going on, that, that just became embedded into the kind of societal fabric, and it wasn't going to go away at that point. And, and you notice that it isn't just that. what was the policy rationale, which was your question to me, that no one really pretended anymore there needed to be. New York had. It, New York ended up having the wave again in January, but by like by September, their COVID positive was less than one percent, and restaurants were still closed. Mm-hmm. So, so it was just basically everyone kind of playing the game to, for the rankings. I mean, like, w- what is our data point going to look like? And uh, it led to a lot of confusion in the public. Um,
0: do you, as as, as you have to know from having to follow all this and deal with people from both sides of these arguments do you have a what is your official response to people who say i'm gonna put it this way the the whole herd herd immunity strategy you know the swedish model versus i don't know the danish model or whatever where do you come down on all that is was is because I hear from people, you know, there are some people who I trust on politics stuff and then they start talking about the the herd immunity thing and I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. And then I look at how Sweden did it and all that and it just doesn't seem to be all that persuasive to me. Um, where do you come down on on all of that?
1: Well, it all depends on how some of the terms are being used. Um, but I start with a premise that I don't know if I've heard you talk about it with COVID, although I think you did very early on, but I know you talk about it all the time in your various view of socioeconomic or sociopolitical matters. So you and I are aligned on this philosophically, but I won't talk about it without some appreciation for the reality of trade-offs. Mm-hmm. So if people talk about herd immunity, meaning, and, and what you're getting at is that Great Barrington um, declaration of the idea that uh, a public health strategy, uh, once we knew that the vulnerabilities were very isolated to either folks with comorbidities, which primarily was obesity. I don't have any idea why no one wants to talk about it. Like It is just such incredible dishonesty by omission. But the number one comorbidity was absolutely obesity for anyone under the age of 70. The number one comorbidity for people being over 70 was being over 70. You know, they were mm-hmm. they were older, they were had had weaker immune systems, wrote more broken down, and often either cardio or particularly respiratory weaknesses. But when we found out that the people that were going to die from COVID either had a comorbidity, were very old. The mortality rate, by the way, even for people over 80, went from 40% down to 20%. Once they started treating things differently, we got some of the different. Uh, viral therapeutics. Uh, They quit putting people on a respirator immediately. There were things like that that didn't move the needle. But all of that to say, the Great Barrington's fundamental thesis, I fully agree with, but in application, there's a lot of problems of where people go with it. That public policy should have, once that was known, focused on protecting the most vulnerable and um, not uh, peeing the bed over 18-year-olds getting COVID. I just think it's indisputable. Mm -hmm. And again, the amount of dishonest reporting that came about by omission, they talked about 72,000 college students uh, testing positive for COVID the first two weeks back at school. And I never saw a single report that two of them were hospitalized, two out of 72,000. And so I think that protecting the vulnerable is obviously the right public strategy. But on the herd immunity side, do people mean by that something it should not mean, which is you cannot get COVID now? Or do they mean it as a threshold by which there needs to be a strong public bias towards normalization? In in Sweden, people can look at certain things that went better and certain things that look worse. And I think that's just trade-offs in action. I wouldn't take the US's policy over Sweden, but I wouldn't take the Swedes over the US. I would demand that someone do the hard work to figure out what the differences are. And that's been an inconvenient truth all through COVID. His narratives never played out. People go, oh, look, Japan, they wore masks, everything's fine. And there was no talk about, you know, I don't know, last time you've been to Tokyo, it's a remarkably non-obese culture. Um, (laughs) And and they just never got a lot of COVID inside of the island that is Japan and things of that nature. So you had different data. Our friend Rich Lowry wrote about this a couple of times. In our own country, the state's data was very inconvenient. You know there should have been a lot more mortalities in Florida with the senior population, but then you but then you did end up having certain outbreaks in other places that had less restrictions, and then you had other places uh, like like Colorado that were really well protected. South Dakota had some events. You know it just it never lined up by any lines people wanted it to. But do I think that COVID becomes a uh, from a policy standpoint a non public health scare at that seventy percentish range? I think that sounds about right. Do I think natural immunity should be factored in? Of course. Um, uh, I, I think it has to be factored in to some degree, but we have to do this with a belief in trade-offs and infallibility and, and fallibility.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, get, I, I as an intellectual matter, I, I always thought the 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 herd immunity argument about, you know I mean it depends who makes it, right? And it depends how they make it, because there are really dumb versions of it, like do nothing, let it run its course, you know and and we'll all be better on the other side i think is kind of grotesque and it's it's particularly grotesque from people who uh claim to be pro-life you know uh you know like pro-life isn't supposed to just cover the unborn it's supposed to be like in favor of life and um and the vulnerable and the weak and this idea of just letting it run its course without you know uh, doing anything about it, um, seemed to be a real inconsistency, if not a grotesque moral failing on, on some pro lifers type, but having a policy that says, Hey, look, let's single out the people who actually might have a chance of dying for this and require greater protections for them, but let other people live a normal life. That seems to me reasonable if you can make it work, but it's sort of a devil in the details. Kind of thing. Yeah,
1: I, I agree. I think that um, some of the Stanford and Johns Hopkins advocates of that approach of letting it run its course were very precise that that meant once you have adequately protected the most vulnerable and, and the elderly. But I also think that there's a difference between the prescriptive and the descriptive here. Most of the people I heard say the term "run its course" did not say "let's let it run its course." They said it's going to run its course. Mm -hmm. They were predicting that this is what is going to happen and that there were varying degrees of protections along the way. Um, You know, it's funny. I've lost a lot of respect for Nassim Taleb over the last few years, and yet I'm never going to forget the fact that he was a tremendous influence uh, with Fooled by Randomness, which is actually a better book than Black Swan. Mm -hmm. And and I do think that so much of this, it's hard to talk about when someone's grandma's sick. It's hard to talk about because I'm a diehard pro-lifer, no pun intended. through the whole entire mess, most of the people that really kind of pissed us off during COVID, particularly the then president, what they did primarily that was wrong was a lack of empathy. And mm. I never wanted to be guilty of a lack of empathy. And at the same time, you know, you sometimes just want to talk to people privately and say, hey, you do know, like there's not much you can do. Like we, some of the different precautions people are taking, I think there was a sense in which, whatever you're comfortable with to protect and not protect, do your thing. But like, there was a sense in which, um, there was a random element to it. And you look back now to, you know, I have 34 employees now, about 20 of them got COVID really. None of them got sick at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one who had, so had, had one had it a little worse than others, but my point being everybody was just kind of fine and you go, okay, well then that means it's set your 70% of the people get COVID and 0% get sick. You know, you you use your little anecdotes. There was tons of people doing that. And so many people knew so many healthy people who got COVID and didn't get sick. And I don't think there was a proper empathy about the comorbidities and the realities of where vulnerability lie. But at the same time, that was exacerbated, not just by these people being hypocritical pro-lifers or being bad people. This isn't like a MAGA thing or anything, although those alignments kind of came later. But what I would say is there was a tremendous frustration at the lack of logic and coherence on the treatment side. So you go, well, okay, we now empirically know obesity is the most vulnerable comorbidity, and we know that no one is getting COVID outside. Mm-hmm. And we know that we just had a summer of riots and nobody blinked about it. And the mayor in New York participated in protests and said everything was fine. And yet this policy solution was don't go outside and everybody order pizza and DoorDash for a few months. Yeah. And I, I think that that was as aggravating to me as what you've identified as people being inadequately consistent with their pro-life ethic. Um, but again, in time, there's going to be a much more sober-minded autopsy. Again, no pun intended. Yeah. There's going to be a more sober-minded analysis that we'll be able to do.
0: No, no. Look, I mean, I, I you know, I mean, as you know, I think there's just a, a massive amount of irrationality and um, narrative maintenance on both sides, right? I mean, I, I find anti—I I find maskophobia as bizarre as maskophilia. Um, and, um, you know, I live in an upscale part of Washington, D.C. I went to Whole Foods two days ago. There were, I was one of five people in a store with, I don't know, 50 to 100 customers in it, not wearing a mask. And I guarantee you the vaccination rate of that Whole Foods was well north of 70%. And it was north of a hundred percent.
1: It was, if they were in a Whole Foods, they'd been vaccinated Period. Well, I, but I'm talking about the
0: customers too, you know? So yeah. like, no, you no, know,
1: no, I, the cu- I'm, I'm including the customers too. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah, so, so let me ask you this though, because I, I haven't talked to you about this and I haven't gathered from your writing. Is your feeling about the, which one's the maskophobic and the maskophiliac? Is the phobic the one afraid of the mask or afraid of not wearing a mask? Uh,
0: good question. Uh, <laughs> Maskophobia, <laughs> go to simplify it for listeners, anti-mask or pro-mask. I I think both, taken to extremes, are idiotic.
1: So your um, condemnation of the anti-mask idiocy in May of 2020, Mm -hmm. is it significantly different than in June of 2021? See, mine is categorically different. Oh,
0: absolutely, absolutely. Like, um, I think that if turning masks into, like, Facial versions of don't tread on me flags or whatever, or Jewish stars in May of 2020 was grotesque and idiotic. It's still the Jewish star stuff is still grotesque and idiotic, but like I feel like I'm doing people a favor by not wearing a mask as I go around because I think people need to learn that it's okay to do it.
1: I and, tell my kids I'm providing them a permission structure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So now I'm totally with you. And I find that being pro mask in, in, in June of 2020 or May of 2020 was much more defensible than it is now. And being anti-max, you know, because times change, vaccination rates change. We know these things. So I agree with you entirely on that. Um, I think that the big problem, I mean, John Barry gets into this in his book about the influenza, you know, um, uh, the Spanish flu outbreak, people just behave badly in pandemics It's this, it's something very lizard brainy in us and, um, they do enormous damage to societies. And I think an enormous amount of goodwill has just, and, and, and good faith has been set aflame in all sorts of places. And I was one of these people. I'm 90% sure you were, um, at the beginning, when you were saying it earlier in the conversation at the beginning of the pandemic. I make a lot of allowances for people getting stuff wrong because we have no institutional memory of dealing with something like this and people are are making the best decisions possible. But so I gave Cuomo a long leash for a while, but now you look back on it and knowing what we know now in hindsight, I'm hard pressed to see why he shouldn't go to jail.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's yeah. what he did was morally reprehensible. Yeah. And and there's not really any ambiguity about what it was and what was driving it. This isn't like real, a real sinister imposition of motive. This is all pretty cut and dry. You know, one thing I'll say kind of controversial for me to say and maybe for you to hear, I would say the same thing about Trump. I think he was allowed to get things wrong early on. Now, I think his, mo- I think his motives early on, were probably more um, ego driven and just didn't want to believe it was going to get bad and whatnot. But I, I think that even um, people in public policy were were allowed, uh, even at that level, were allowed to get things wrong. The the issue for me where I found Trump's response to be really unbearable. It was not in all the January and February stuff. I think mostly everything those guys have said is true that Biden did say it was um, racist to close off the border from China he, and and or xenophobic, you know, all that type of stuff. I think that that's a fair defense. And I don't think that before, he, uh, the idea that they were going to lock down the country before we had a public infection is the dumbest, I mean, what are people talking about? They can't be serious. But like that thing where he wanted to keep the boat off the shore to keep the, the te- you know, all that kind of stuff, It's it's hard to defend. But what just completely became unbearable for me was the press conferences, Mm -hmm. where at the point of a really significant national hysteria, some of it rational, a lot of it not, but difficult times, him getting into this little daily fight with reporters was just uh, awful to watch. But I I think that the getting things wrong thing where I've become a big Fauci critic. And I was such a defender early on for the same reason you and I are talking Mm -hmm. about is I just think, yeah, people get married to a narrative. It becomes hard to let go. Um, and at, at this point, I really believe, and I know you've written about this, uh, Biden had a chance to be the guy who got us off of all this, not sustained it a bit longer. Um, but it's such a, a bizarre, I don't know if you read or listen to some of Charlie Cook's and Rich's interaction on this. Charlie, as you know, is down in Florida. I've traveled to different places, Jonah, where I swear there's not a single person wearing a mask. Yeah. I go back to Newport Beach, California, where I live half the time. Nobody, no one is wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. And now, after all of the CDC, the COVID rate in New York is less than 1%. Everything is gone, done. Everyone telling you you can go back to normal in Upper West Side with young people, it's well more than half still walking around outdoor with masks and I don't have a way to interpret that charitably. I think it's a cultural marker, I think it's virtue signaling, and I think it's Phariseeism.
0: no i i'm I'm completely with you on this um that doesn't mean a lot Tucker that I think you should be calling child services on anybody um people have a wrong be- as
1: Tucker said that.
0: Yeah, he said that like if you see people, if you see kids in their front yard with um, masks on, you should call child services, which is not. I would argue. Well, that's he,
1: always been his conservative view that we need to have a heavy relationship with Department of Child Services. So it's good right. to see him sticking to his conservative bona fides. It's it's it's
0: just the logical extension of the Elian Gonzalez position, right? Yeah. So,
1: um,
0: uh, all right, I'm not. We could do this all day, but um, we have we have we have other grievances to air. Um, um, Big ones. So let me, uh, I I know you want to do your witchcraft with inflation and deflation, and we will get to that. Um, We'll see if you can do it so much that, that Ramesh Puneer's ears literally catch on fire. They're burning so much, but uh, you know what? You
1: know what? One, one, one listener thinks you're about to ask me about. Um, I was talking to someone yesterday who said uh, that they first got introduced to me because they heard me on your podcast and and now they've been following my investment writing and are very fond of my economic worldview. And so we were having this business conversation, and he said, "I know you've done Jonah's podcast, but all you guys ever talk about is eschatology." <laughs> <laughs> and I just laughed and go, "Oh, that well, yeah, that was the very first provocation, I guess."
0: We have right. talked a good deal of eschatology, and we will talk about <laughs> eschatology again, but not at this moment. Um, yes, uh, so. I want to ask you, as if you were under oath in a Senate hearing, have you now or have you ever organized your personal finances so as to minimize your tax burden?
1: Um, <laughs> i yeah. to, uh,
0: to the pro-publica Pro backlash.
1: Yes, you know, yeah, this is going to be fun. Although, um, as sarcastic as the question's intentionally, and obviously the answer is yes, and anyone who isn't, it's malpractice. But as soon as I tell people that I live fifty percent of the time in Manhattan and fifty percent in California, they might think I'm pretty bad at organizing <laughs> my my tax affairs. But yeah, that your your stuff over the weekend, your your solo podcast on on this ProPublica stuff, Pro Publica stuff was absolutely outstanding. And by the way, the only thing I don't maybe you did get to this and I missed it. I thought it was disgusting when they did it to Trump too. Yeah. Now, he should have released them, um, but the, the whole issue that is just absolutely unforgivable to me is w- this notion that people are trying to minimize taxes and they're trying to use the law in a way that um, optimizes their, their take-home pay. It, I don't have the need to defend it because I start off with the presupposition that those people t- keeping more of their take-home pay, that they are going to allocate that capital more resourcefully than if they do give more and i don't think they should ever break the law but to the extent that it's legal that i believe that it's a good thing economically not a bad thing um but there are other reasons people might not want their tax records exposed you know uh just fights with with uh the spouses whatnot i mean i remember this thing the idea that anyone was ever shocked at what was going to be in Trump's tax returns. Like it really did get to a point where who cares if he released them or not because all you were going to debate is where the comma was. There was going to be some huge operating loss that uh, revealed some big business failures that enabled him to not pay much in taxes for a long time. Big deal. And then I guess there could have been some side effect of guess what? Donald Trump is not very charitable. You know, I mean, like I don't I don't think that was and that's never a big thing for Democrats either. There a lot of Democratic candidates have been very stingy. The last time that we had a guy who gave a ton of money to charity was Mitt Romney, and they said he was a vulture capitalist and a demon and everything. So you can't win in this stuff. Yeah, I'm, gonna,
0: it, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold on. I, I'm just gonna push back on this a little bit in the spirit of charity and and all the rest. Um there is a really big distinction, I think, between going after Bill Gates, George Soros, all of those guys that ProPublica did, and going after the sitting president of the United States, who said he was going to release his tax returns, made all, campaigned on his business acumen and his financial dealings, and again, is the president of the United States. And also, the. But, the, but what, is there a difference legally? Well, no, but hold on. Also, tax, I, I, I I could be wrong on this, but my recollection is the New York times and others got his tax stuff from people in his family or his personal orbit who are like no. an ex-wife and that like were privy to no, it. No, you think that no. also came from the IRS?
1: No, I don't think it came from either. I think it, I believe it came from an anonymous source, which is what they say. They have never said the source was a family member. It showed up in a yellow envelope. The second big story. Right. But
0: my understanding, well, my recollection of it, and I could be wrong is that, that, there was at least a plausible storyline or narrative that it came from, like, his second wife or other people in that orbit. There's no well, such explanation Mar- for that Mar- for the Mar- pro Apple- thing.
1: Yeah, uh, bottom line is I'm with you that the pro-publica thing is absolutely inexcusable. And if there's a distinction, I'll, I'll granted, as long as it's a distinction of degree, not of kind. Um, Fair enough. But, but I just want to make the simple point that politically the only loser in that whole thing was Trump. He had nothing to lose ever by releasing his tax returns because what they they were going to show was that he had huge years of losses, which I think most of America might have known from the six bankruptcies. Right. You know, that he wasn't a charitable guy that I think most New Yorkers know because the only building that has his name on it is Trump Tower. You know, there's no hospitals, there's no universities, he has no one thought the guy was charitable. Everyone knew he had business failures. What was the reason not to release it? And because he had said he was going to do it, it was just a big, stupid move by him. But at the end of the day, that was leaked uh, information. And then I thought that the New York Times wrote like a, it felt like an 80-page piece when they went through all the estate tax returns of his. That was pretty much all, cli- all combing public records. Mm-hmm. That wasn't illegal. They, I don't think they're violating privacy. It was just an insanely stupid article because they were trying to say 20 years later, that valuations of real estate were too low and the IRS had accepted them. The returns had been audited and it would have been news to every single person who's ever filed an estate tax return that you're supposed to overstate the value of your assets, not understate. But with this ProPublica thing, I would say with uh, Gates has sort of become kind of a toxic political figure uh, certainly Soros always has been, but you know, really what was interesting is they're not pretend this wasn't like right-wing people going after Soros or left-wing people going after Coke. This was just, we're going after this because they're rich. There wasn't even a pretense of trying to find a political rivalry in it. And, and it was overtly illegal and all the conclusions that have come from it, um, are, are totally s- ridiculous. But uh, the Buffett secretary, all the things that we could talk about, the, the bottom line is the people have a responsibility to defend themselves. If they're going to allow the narrative to continue that they're paying less in taxes when you're talking about capital appreciation that comes from income already taxed. This is the great lie. Is uh, I was at an investment symposium a couple weeks ago. Howard Marks is a billionaire, runs Oak Tree. Really smart guy. He's behind this kind of no labels thing right now. He's one of the mm-hmm. donors there. They have some interesting things going on. He's a, a lifetime Democrat, though. But he was saying, Look, I'm a billionaire and, and I don't think it's fair that my tax rate sometimes is less than gardeners and secretaries, and other such things. And, and, and I, 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 first of all, do actually believe it's a legitimate response. I don't know why Buffett and these guys that feel so bad about it can't write a voluntary check to the government. But even apart from that, it is not true. This is the double taxation that is waiting for its triple taxation. And that fact has to be put in the public square, and it's not being. So I saw somewhere, um, I think by
0: from, uh, Ryan Ellis, that the effective tax rate that most people pay um, when you account for dependents, you know, exemptions, and all that kind of stuff is pretty much the same tax rate that, that billionaires pay. It's about 26%, you know, after all of the deductions and allowances. I don't know if that's entirely right for everybody, but. Um,
1: well, the, the, the thing with those studies, I wrote a whole chapter about this in my Elizabeth Warren book, which I want to thank her campaign for imploding the week before the book came out.
0: <laughs> um, you and you and John Padoritz can commiserate because she wrote. he wrote, can she be stopped about Hillary Clinton?
1: <laughs> there's a massive, massive, massive data point missing in that tax rate which is the offset of transfer payments. Mm-hmm. So when someone who makes $2 million a year and in retirement gets their $21,000 of Social Security, they've moved the needle, a basis point. And when uh, someone who makes fifty dollars a year gets their 20 thousand of Social Security, it's adding 40% to their income. Right. And so those tax rates do not take into account the percentage equivalent of received transfer payments Mm-hmm. Which are overwhelmingly to the favor of the lower income, sure. And once you factor those amounts in, we have a very graduated and progressive tax rate in our country,
0: oh, yeah, know if if you count all levels of taxation, state, federal, local, um there's property property. there are legitimate studies' that have said for years that we have equal to or more progressive tax rate than Sweden. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, no, it's a, not- we have a very progressive tax code in this country and the top 1% pay something like 90% of all the income taxes that are paid in this country. Um, and, uh, but like, if you had to explain to somebody of good faith, um, why a wealth tax is a bad idea, where would you begin?
1: Well, I, I mean, when I um, wrote the chapter in the Warren book on the wealth tax, uh, which uh, Commentary Magazine published as an article, so it is available online, I think.
0: We'll put it in I, the show I, I,
1: could, I couldn't narrow it to one thing because I think that there are totally separate categories, but it's always nice to start with just the practicality. So, like, if the point of the wealth tax is to generate revenue, it's nice to just start with the fact that it doesn't generate revenue, and mm. that's why 15 out of 17 European countries tried it and got rid of it. Um, it, it. But the second thing is the misallocation of capital, providing incentives for people to talk down their stock right before December to to um, you know uh, convert a bunch of things into private uh, assets that then have have an illiquidity. Discount associated with them to move things into art and other hard to define uh, categories of wealth. There, there is just uh, Larry Summers was exactly right. He wrote a big op-ed in the Washington Post blasting the idea. And at the end of the day, I deal with this all the time uh, on behalf of estate tax. The biggest problem with state tax is not just its immorality; it's that nobody pays it. Mm -hmm. That's why it generates less than twenty billion dollars a year in a multi-trillion dollar economy. Because you can do planning to get away around it. And the wealth tax would be the same thing. But instead of doing it one time, you'd have to do it every year, which is more inefficiency and more money going into accountants and lawyers and lobbyists and all those things and not into the productive part of the economy. Uh, But then I, as a Bible thumper, will end with the rank immorality of it. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. Thou shalt not steal, I believe, in private property. And if somebody owns property, it is in a divine context. Uh, It is not in the the magistrate who has the first lien on whatever percentage they legislate. So the notion that we don't like Paris Hilton or we think trust fund kids are obnoxious. Look, I'm a self-made guy. I hate rich kids. (laughs) 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 But I don't want to tax them to death because I think that it's immoral. I don't think I have the right to Im, Im, impose that view. So the immorality, the impracticality and the inefficiencies are my major categories.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think you, you touch on, on the last part, the real, I'm totally with you on the distorting effects that it would have and the impracticality of it. Um, but what you consider to be a bug of it is the real feature. It's punitive. That's what they like about it. Mm-hmm. It's just literally punitive and that's why they want to do it. And Um, yet, it's
1: not punitive when they don't pay it. And to be able to move jurisdictions, to be able to get discounted values, uh, you'd have a lot less companies in public equity. They'd go to private, and then you get valuations, and you'd go to all kinds of gymnastics to justify why a company that was valued at 100 million in public markets is now 50 million in private. Um, You would absolutely. Uh, uh by the way, you, this is something I've, I stole this line from you years ago. It's one of my favorite things I've ever heard you say. Um, and I think you stole it from someone else, but that's what all of us pundits do, right? Regulations of subsidy. Right. Okay. The fact of the matter is the guy who has built a really impressive family business, a privately owned chain of car washes in the Midwest, but it cash flows tens of millions a year and all this kind of thing. They are not going to have the same access that the CEO of Amazon is going to have and their ability to hide stock options and do uh, certain restricted grants and, and whatnot, put things in defective grant or trust. There's a lot of complexity available that even other wealthy people wouldn't necessarily have. But all wealthy people are going to have to some degree that it's not going to be punitive to that effect. So it isn't. it's, it's not even as punitive. And and it it really is uh, distortive. And yet I think the distortions are primarily going to be of people who can least afford it. And this is why this notion, not just of the wealth tax, but all ideas of taxing capital, it all sounds good. It all is really important right now in this present time with angst around wealth inequality. And yet I do truly believe, this isn't trickle-downism, this is a basic economic 101 of capital formation, that to the degree you disincentivize the formation of new capital, it's absolutely inevitable that you disincentivize future productivity. Mm-hmm. And this isn't just some Sean Hannity point that only rich people uh, hire workers. It, my point is that capital sits at the foundation of where this economic growth will go in the future. And we talk in a Marxian way about this, as if capital is evil. And that's that's kind of my big you know, issue right now.
0: Yeah. And I, I I don't know if I talked about this on the solo thing. I know I talked about it on the dispatch podcast last week. I was watching a debate about this on morning, Joe, between Josh Barrow and that guy, a non I can never pronounce his last name. The, the Indian left-wing guy, um, writes to the Atlantic a lot. And Barrow made some, I mean, you would disagree with him. I would disagree with him, but he made some perfectly legitimate points about how, if you want to deal with what you see as problems, as described by ProPublica, we could do certain things to estate estate tax laws that um, capture more of the the value of these assets before people park them in ways and blah, 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 blah. And he says, you know, there's an opportunity maybe in the next Congress when some of these Trump tax cuts expire, blah, 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 blah. And, um, And then this Anand guy says, Look, that's all very interesting, but at the end of the day, we got to stop talking about what's plausible in this Congress or that Congress and talk about what really needs to happen, which is the confiscation of these massive amounts of wealth, yeah. and it is amazing how untethered so much of the left-wing, not even the left the mainstream liberal, you know, was the guy who wrote for um, the, the columnist of the New York Times who said, abolish billionaires, and which mm-hmm. promised. Prom- prompted kevin williamson to point out that whenever your preferred policy program requires abolishing or eliminating an entire category of human beings maybe you should start over um but there's an enormous amount of sort of bane from batman kind of stuff going on out there and i'm amazed at how bad most people in your income bracket and above are at defending themselves and 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 the role of capital
1: well, and and I think there are a few exceptions. You, include, you, know, you excluded. Th- you excluded. Yeah, that, that's right. And and um, you know, Steve Schwartzman at uh, Blackstone, uh, Leon Cooperman, who wrote the appendix in my book on Warren, he didn't back down from her at all. These are kind of center right in Schwartzman's case, center left in Cooperman's case, billionaire guys who are just hyper philanthropic, who, particularly in Schwartzman's case, have done more for the economy in the last forty years. Than maybe all but eight other people on planet Earth, and they won't put up with it. They're they they are perfectly capable of defending themselves, but yeah, they're outliers. And 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 you know what's funny, uh, I was livid with Mitt Romney in in uh, 2012, and I was not livid with him for any of the reasons that a, one other person I heard share. I heard all kinds of Republicans say he was a fake conservative. Obviously, all years later, we've heard the stuff with Trump and all that. And and I heard all the left Democrats say he got in a fight in the locker room and he did something with his dog and all that, uh, you know, whatever. Um, he was demonized in so many different ways. But the one thing that I thought was a fair criticism was it was really weak sauce, his defense of private equity and his defense mm-hmm. of himself, of his own business record. But I think he got bad political advice, and that's what I think you're seeing right now in corporate America. Most people are reasonably afraid of touching that thing and and they and it invites, if you're a corporate CEO, it's probably not worth it because mm-hmm. they're, they're going to go after you in a way it could damage your company. It could damage your shareholders. Your board's not going to like it. The people that have a kind of F you attitude about it are pretty much hedge funders. And those are the folks that, that I try to, I'm trying to poke that bear a little because they're perfectly capable intellectually at defending themselves. Mm -hmm. And yet they don't make very sympathetic characters. You know, first of all, a lot of them are like sociopaths, (laughs) you know, and, and so there's almost like this avatar of who you need to be the spokesperson. And, and it's not a single person, Mm -hmm. you know, they have to have a certain empathy. They have to have a certain likability and wealth and articulate ability. And it's just hard to put all those things together.
0: All right. Um, we could do more of this, but the the level of violence agreement will be nauseating, so we should probably just stop on this one. Lastly, are we going to get inflation? Do we have inflation? Should we be worried about inflation? Do we need to sacrifice 50 more bulls to ball? What What's going on?
1: All right. So this is uh, I sent you an email last night saying that there's a remnant moment going on here. And uh, I I woke up this morning, uh, you know, I I get up at 3.45 every morning and start doing my daily research analysis. And the first thing I read was uh, a statement that came out last night from the White House about the 18% drop in lumber prices last week and the 40% drop in lumber prices since the peak saying, see, we told you so about transitory inflation. And of course, the big spike up in lumber prices was transitory and supply uh, malfunction related. And this big drop down is the sort of gravitational pull of something that had gotten highly distorted. But this is such a ridiculous, unforced error by Republicans to walk into this inflation narrative without doing any homework, without thoroughly investigating it. And taking little headline numbers that at any level of diligence, not deep-seated economic analysis, the type of stuff that Ramesh and I mostly agree upon, I'm saying anyone could have seen that some of the inflationary data points were related to the very low numbers of COVID a year ago and related to uh, what are mostly systemic supply uh, kind of malfunctions right now. Uh, an inadequate production of lumber that caused an anomaly of a price spike that lasted for about a minute. And so what the Republicans have done on a nightly basis on Fox News is to me, and I say this on Cudlow's show every week, and by the way, Larry totally agrees with me on this, it's crazy because it's totally uh, disputable six months later in a way that gives the other side a huge talking point you all said my spending plan and my COVID plan and my entitlement plan and my this and that was bad because it was inflationary. It wasn't inflationary. Therefore, it's good. But the fact of the matter is it is bad. It's bad for a lot of other reasons. They picked the wrong bad reason and now they're stuck to it. And this exact same thing played out 10 years ago with, or a little over 10 years ago out of the financial crisis with quantitative easing. Our friend Kevin Williamson was all over that narrative about this is going to crush the dollar. This is going to create big inflation. But Kevin had the good sense to write a mea culpa and say, okay, I got that one wrong. Now I understand it better. Um, there, There's a whole group of people out there that know the narrative, the talking points of 1970s inflation. We are facing tremendous economic challenges that are more of a disinflationary variety, but they're certainly in an economic stagnation camp, very low, slow, no growth. That Japanification is real. It isn't as bad here as it is in Japan. For all the obvious reasons, we are more educated. We are more productive. We do have a more diverse workforce. Um, There's just a lot of things that, that buy us more time than Japan had. But excessive government spending is deflationary. It has been forever And bond yields say it over and over and over again. So for Ted Cruz to go on Fox and say, oh my God, lumber prices are higher. This is the inflation we get from big government spending. After voting for trillion dollar deficits plus every year of the Trump administration, it's not just the dishonesty. That stuff I kind of don't even talk about anymore because, well, I'm sick of it, right? Mm -hmm. It's that it's going to hurt them politically because there will end up being a, a, a catchback to around that two percent rate. They want more inflation. I'm not saying this is a good thing. The politicians and certainly the central bankers would love to create more inflation. I'm saying they can't do it because excessive government indebtedness crushes velocity of money, crushes loan demand. The good borrowers are already levered, and they get a diminishing return. The Keynes presupposed equilibrium. This is not a multiplier effect. It's a negative multiplier. And they, we see it objectively in the United States post financial crisis, in Japan for 40 years, and the 10 year and 30 year bond yields scream it in our face. And yet people still go with the cheap, easy talking point that it seems to me has taken about six weeks to be disproven when all they had to do was focus on what is probably the most insane. Unforced error of public policy I've seen, which was this extension to government supplement in unemployment. That is a massive error, it is directly traceable to that bill that passed. 25 states have now opted out. There are help wanted signs all over uh, uh, 9 million unfilled jobs, directly traceable to the roughly $20 an hour the government's paying people to not work. And we're trying to go. Uh, bring back the ghost of Milton Friedman to make a point that the people don't understand to begin with. It's totally stupid. All right. That
0: was in the spirit of the remnant, um, an Isaiah level worthy rant. Um, I want to do some cleanup for listeners who um, may not have followed every jot and tittle of it because um, they're not CNBC addicts or whatnot. So um, I've, tried to be consistent on this i i first of all i as i'm sure you've heard me say i don't know if there's inflation i got people i trust who say there's not going to be i got people i trust who say there is my own view has been that i'd rather live in a country where we worried about inflation simply because that is a natural restraint on overspending um and over um and a world where no longer worries about inflation is a world where you start printing two, $2 trillion coins. Right. Um, but beyond that, I've said a bunch of times that the, that you would expect some moment, some transitory inflationary stuff coming out of a pandemic. Everybody ramped Ooh. down production, everybody ramped down construction, everybody ramped down, you know, all sorts of things. And then it takes a little while to start all that stuff back up again. And so all of a sudden, everybody's doing construction projects and they, haven't, they don't have the backlog of lumber to supply. So, of course, the price of lumber is going to go up, you know? And right. so that made total sense to me. Um, at the same time, like, can you explain, first of all, explain the deflationary bond yield part as if <clears throat> I wasn't the world's foremost expert on these things.
1: <clears throat> okay, so Reagan leaves office in 1989 and we have $900 billion of national debt. And the 10-year bond yield was 9%. So in order for you to be comfortable loaning your money to the federal government, for them to pay you back your principal in 10 years, you commanded 9%. And uh, fast forward to where we are today, the national debt's at $26 trillion, not counting entitlements and climbing rapidly. And And not counting state
0: and local debt as well, right? Federal
1: debt only, federal debt only and the bond yield is 1.45%. So people are accepting a tiny fraction of the, of the interest, which is the measurement of the risk, in order to loan the government their money for 10 years. So who is willing to give the government their money for 10 years if they believe there will be 3 4 5% inflation between now and then for a rate that is less than half of that? Well, one argument would be, yeah, but the Fed's manipulating it. But the Fed only owns 20% on their balance sheet of all of the national debt. Japan owns over 60%, Hmm. and their bond yield is zero. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Fed has purchased a very low portion of the long-duration bonds. Right now, there is trillions of dollars of people Hedge funds, private actors, other countries, what have you, that own government debt at 10 at 10 year maturity, that's going to pay them 1.5% a year. And they're perfectly content with it. And if they wanted to go in the market and sell, it would push the yields up and it would push the price of the bonds down. And they're not doing that. All this inflation talk picked up in earnest in March. The 10 year had gone to 1.85%. And now, after more higher CPI, higher. Uh, inflation data the the bond yields come down to 40 basis points it is the judge and jury now i believe it's very legitimate and academically honest to discuss why it is what i don't believe is honest is to discuss if it is that for 40 years japan the united states united kingdom and the european union have blown out their debt spending as a percentage to gdp And that bond yields have completely collapsed, the measurement of inflation. That's indisputable. Those are just rank empirical facts. Now, in Japan, people were fond of saying, yeah, it's very disinflationary. But remember, they don't have enough young people. They have an upside down demographics tree. There's um, not the same technology, not the same immigration. Oh, that's true. Uh, but all the demographics, all those things are working against the United States now too, just at a slower pace. We're down to 1.6, 1.7 kids per household. That's not good. That's deflationary. There was a huge deflationary event in the last 20 years, namely China putting about 500 million laborers into the global workforce. Uh, So that has an automatic deflationary impact. It, uh, It enables China to export some of their deflation. But at the end of the day, the basic answer to your question is that you get a diminishing return from government debt because it is non productive spending. It just comes down to economics 101 about resource allocation. I think capital is allocated more productively. So, how do you get more money? We say well, the government prints it. We love that expression mon- government printing money. What does it mean? The government can't print money and put it in my bank account. Okay, so they can print money and put it in the excess reserves of the bank, but how does that get into the economy? Well, what if I go deposit money in my bank? Well, I already had the money. So all I did is move it from Wells Fargo to Citibank. That's not money creation. How did more money get in my bank or in into a bank that means more money in the economy? Someone had to borrow it. And then the government and then the bank is lending it out to you with money that was printed by the Fed. It takes loan demand. To increase money supply, how do you get more loan demand? You need more velocity of money. This is Irving Fisher 101. Uh, By the way, Hayek, all of my um, forefathers in economics agree with everything I'm saying. The point is that people believe you're going to get that velocity because the government's now giving it directly to people. And my point is, no, you're not. Because maybe the first guy who gets a $600 government check goes out to the bar, spends it all. Uh, but then the bartender is holding on to it, saving, paying down bills, paying backward rent. You're always getting caught up in an over-indebted economy. And so besides the fact that we are the world's reserve currency, besides the fact that we have economic output, the Venezuela and and Argentina-type lines about this stuff completely miss the point about the velocity of money that comes from compressed loan demand, Because we reflated already post-crisis, we were running a corporate economy about three to one debt leverage, debt to income. Now it's up to five to one. But see, I think that was mostly pretty healthy. Those are pretty good allocators of capital, private equity, public markets, middle middle market lending. Okay. They they go borrow at 3% and go to a project that gives a 20% return on equity. We like that investment. It reflates, it leverages up a little, but now you're at five to one debt to EBITDA. You can't borrow more. You're kind of you're a good borrower and you're kind of already at the at the extent. So either you get really bad misallocation, what von Reese would call a malinvestment, mm-hmm. or the money doesn't turn over. It just sort of stops. That's what we're seeing now. And and so I know it's a long answer, and hopefully it wasn't only for a CNBC level audience, <laughs> but this is this is important for people to understand that I am not saying. See, everything's okay. Biden's bill is good. Government spending is good. I'm saying the opposite. The government spending is terrible, but it's, an, it's not going to create the earthquake but, you're predicting. It's going to create terrible, a hurricane.
0: Right, not terrible for the reasons everyone is saying.
1: I but. believe the idea of your daughter and my kids growing up in a, G, a real GDP growth of 1% to 2% is totally immoral, totally unacceptable. And we grew up in a world as Gen Xers of 3.1% real GDP growth. And I think we will fight like hell to get half of that for the next 20 years. And the reason is excessive government debt. And if they could inflate it away, they would do it in a second, but they can't. Can I just say one more thing? I feel like Pedoritz here. (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: fine. We're we're catching up for two years of non-financial talk on this This podcast. (laughs) This is true.
1: There is inflation in house prices and in higher education tuition and in healthcare costs. And all three of those things are highly regressive. The people that suffer from it the most are lower income people. Um, I don't suffer from fuel prices because I don't have the foggiest idea what fuel prices are. It's just a reality of affluent people. They don't even know what this stuff costs. And price inflation and those type of things hurts people lower income more. It's just true. But none of those things are monetary inflation. They're all subsidized. Mm -hmm. Higher education tuitions went through the roof to where Oregon State now costs 20% more than Harvard did 10 years ago. Think about that one. No offense, beavers of Oregon State, but, you know, (laughs) come on. Because the government's loan market and loan subsidy has given administrators carte blanche to charge whatever they want. So we actually have three examples of real inflation that are driven by government policy failures. And we're sitting around talking about lumber prices that we know are going to be different in four weeks. That's the frustration I have.
0: Um, totally with you on the, on the regressiveness of all of this, the, the, and it's, and this is a point that it, that was true prior to the current craziness about about inflation, in that you look at, at anywhere that the government touches with the heavy hand of regulation, prices go up, right? So it's it's not just those; it's healthcare, education. You look at what rent control does to prices for real estate in New York. um, um, and the places where, I mean, I remember Chris Muth always making this point about how the, the most efficient healthcare in America was veterinary care because it was, it, it had caps on, um, on liability, which I reject because if you kill my dog through negligence, I'm going to sue the crap out of you and it shouldn't be capped at 500 bucks, but such as it is, you don't have malpractice insurance the way you would with human beings. And it's for the most part, a cash, a fee for service business. And so there's a competition for prices in ways that you don't get in healthcare. And you can just go down a really long list of places where in part, this whole complexity as a subsidy thing kicks in again, where if you have, um, if you're really good at at, at dealing with paperwork and, and, and all these other things, you're going to be okay. But otherwise it's a huge barrier to entry for, for poor people. And the same thing goes with crime, you know, which is coming back is it's another regressive tax on poor people. so, all that said, you didn't mention. I mean, you did roundabout. Do you think the current, uh, the current wage inflation is indicative of inflation, or is it indicative of inflation in the same way these other things are because they have to do with bad government policy?
1: They absolutely have to a bad government policy, and in this case, a very specific and very identifiable one, which was the extension of federal government subsidies. Now. Uh, The Trump administration started it with CARES Act, right? Now, Mm -hmm. I I think that you could make an argument. I didn't support that part of the CARES Act, but at least at that point, nobody would dispute we were right in ground zero of the pandemic. The economic contraction that took place from the lockdowns in late Q1 and early Q2 was monumental. So you could argue that it was just part of the policy milieu out of uh, the immediacy of the COVID uh, damage. Uh, extending it with the second bill I thought was really unwise. That was done in the lame duck session between uh, presidents. And then that the third is just by a significant degree more reckless and inexplicable. Uh, keep in mind, none of this has anything to do with the direct payments. Mm-hmm. This is purely just a federal government subsidy on top of state unemployment um, at a time the economy is reopening. So the wage inflation you see is entirely related to employers having to pay non-market wages to get people to come back to work in response to a supply, demand, imbalance around available labor. The um, the issue here, though, is the long run. It's not like people are talking about sticky wages here, that, well, then people are going to come back in September when the government goes away and the employers are still going to have to pay the higher wage, and that's sticky. No, they're not. Because they will take efforts in their best in their own self interest. Between now and then, they will find other solutions. More use of independent contractors. More use of part time. Um, you more know, robots. Getting more four, having four people do three person's job. More kiosks and robots and automation. The, all of those trends that are already in play, anyways, are all part of creative destruction. Have different you know short term challenges, but long term opportunities associated with it, and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, um, this is not sticky with wages. The only thing that's interesting is it's usually the opposite. Usually out of a real recession, and this was a very um, peculiar recession, you actually get higher profit margins because you learn to do more with less when you have to lay Mm -hmm. people off in tough times, and you don't have to hire them all back when revenue starts picking back up again. And out of an economic recovery, you usually get big margin expansion because you're getting a more productive labor force. Mm-hmm. Right now, everything has been skewed by all of the dramatic um, decisions of the last year. So, I mean, we're running
0: along, but I'm just out of curiosity. So, almost all the the red states have curtailed this to one extent or another. It's and the blue states haven't, right?
1: No, well, what? Maryland has.
0: Okay, so I, I can't. So Maryland I can't, is a, can't. a Republican governor, right? I mean,
1: yeah, it is. But it's interesting to say that uh, Maryland is. A pretty overwhelmingly blue state. And sure. as um, someone from California has found out when he came to New York, there are weird things that happen out here in the East coast where you get like a Republican governor in Massachusetts. And yet you have Elizabeth Warren and obviously yeah. New York, you know, uh, I thought it was, they were, I read a thing this morning about it, The mayor race we're having here in the city that they said like, Oh, well, four of the last six mayors have been Democrats and I was like, four out of four out of six? I thought it'd be like 50 out of 50, you know, but, but Bloomberg and Giuliani, like that's not exactly ancient history, but Maryland is an overwhelmingly blue state when you look to the margins, when you look mm-hmm. to the legislator. And that's an interesting move that they were willing to go that way because that wasn't just the governor doing it by edict. That was a state yeah. legislator that said, we got to undo this thing. Um. And by the I, way, Joan, every single business at East Hampton, uh, my wife and I have a place in East Hampton we go to on weekends, every single store has a Help Wanted sign out. Sure, sure. So so it's blue states that are suffering from it. They may just not be willing to solve it. Um, but my point is, because I could, I could talk about
0: quirkiness of East Coast politics for a whole other podcast, but the reason I brought it up is, I, including Maryland, fine. There's something of a real experiment, real world experiment going on, right? Because X number of states are going to cancel the UI, and Y number of states are not. Um, what do you think it is going to be clear and obvious? Say three months from now, six months from now. Um, do, th- do you think this question of whether or not the extension on unemployment benefits will be proven to have been a bad idea by the results of this natural experiment of this? this natural experiment yeah
1: I think it's already been proven I think it's pretty non-controversial now and my own guess uh, is that Biden's pretty livid about it I think I think that he with his people behind the scenes has had to say what is the political benefit we've gotten from this you know we gave a bunch of free money out we did other things um, there was plenty of transfer payments associated with yeah. two trillion dollars and all we've gotten from this one is is the headache of exacerbated unemployment, some bad prints month over month, and so forth. Uh, so yes, I very much believe that um, we will have total clarity on that later in the year, but I think we have clarity on it now. We're just going to be on the other side of it. All right,
0: um, David, I mean, I mean, again, I always love talking to you, and we will have you back on more. Um, um, and it will be interesting to see how many people which section of this podcast will be people's favorites? I think we'll get some interesting
1: feedback on that. Let us know. Um, people can yeah, find. yeah, the lack of eschatology, the deeper dive of theological education—that's um, going to disappoint some of our some of our more fanatic fans.
0: I know. I mean, they're going to be people who are going to um, they're going to they're going to find out that you're back on the podcast, and then they're going to listen to it, and they're going to start to look like a big dog whose food bowl has been moved. Yeah. And don't, don't, wait, where, where's the eschatology? Where's Where's the pre millenarianism versus post millenarianism? Um, which was again, part Is of it, a, your it, first couple episodes.
1: isn't the business model here i think what shapiro does is then he says go to this other like password protected place (laughs) and we're going to talk about eschatology there and i just uh i I can only assure people that um joan and i are right now going to stop recording and we're going to sit here and talk about eschatology and it's going to be awesome
0: it'll be glorious
1: (laughs) um all right uh, you know, in some
0: ways, talking about the deflationary spiral is, is a little bit of an eschatological feel if it, if it really does lead to the end times. But I guess that's a bit of a stretch.
1: Yeah, I know. It's funny because uh, the, the line I use a lot with clients is that you know, T.S. Eliot's thing about, I stole this from Dr. Lacey Hunt, who's one of my favorite living economists. They go, how does this end? And I say, I think it ends with a whimper, not a bang. But this has been a problem that sort of reveals some of the revolutionary, I think, tendencies of a lot of people on the right, certainly that kind of Lou Rockwell crowd that's been predicting the end of the world forever. And this is the sort of legacy of Murray Rothbard. They, all, they needed a societal breakdown. And hyperinflation and warfare on the streets gives a societal breakdown. It, it speaks to the sociology of being a gold bug and all that mm-hmm. stuff. The deflationary camp is, in my opinion, worse for the economy, yet it doesn't have any melodrama. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's for Japan is still there. Right. Japan's a pretty happy country. It's just that there's been no growth mm-hmm. and it's not good. And, and I think that the United States needs to be a growing country. And I think that we have done something that's uh, going to be impossible to come back from. But I'm still humble about how it all ends, as any honest economist has to be. I don't know, but I do believe that the central bank now is the main actor in it. They're going to be the main actor, and I think almost everyone in America is looking to them to be the main actor, uh, where up until about 10 years ago, I still would have said we could have grown our way out of this. I don't think we can grow our way out of it now. So, I mean, I,
0: I know we're in overtime, but... um. You know, I've been making this point for a long time that that low interest rates have real costs too. I mean, everyone ever. It seems like since the the 2008 financial crisis, everyone thinks that low interest rates are great. You know, my mom is a retirement. Portfolio. Well, by the way,
1: Jonah, they they thought they were great before the financial crisis. That was well, sort of the point, right? They no, exactly. Create.
0: Yeah. That, that's true. Chicken or the egg? Fair enough. Yeah. But but it just seems like the way people talk about it as if there are no dire consequences to low interest rates and i understand it as a matter of international of about our national debt like if interest rates go back up to historic norms we're screwed on that front but there are a lot of old people who were supposed to live off of their retirement based, generated by you know bonds and interest and um that has really hurt people what what would be the financial consequences if just for the sake of argument the fed it would have to announce it well in advance, and it'd have to ease into it. It couldn't do it overnight, but really started on a campaign of raising interest rates to two and a half, three percent, which historically are still low. But what you know, what what would be the reaction from the market? What what do you think would be the reaction from the economy?
1: Well, look, the Fed the Fed is not going to be going anywhere near two and a half, three percent in the Fed Funds rate, the only rate they can control for a long, long time, right? All the way into 2008, late 18, early 19, at the peak level after they had raised rates about eight times, they didn't get anywhere near 3%. I think they petered out at 225. It might've been 250. Okay. And that was over 10 years after the financial crisis. So at the end of the day, I don't, I'm not, and Ramesh and I very much agree on this. I don't want the Fed to set the rate at a high level or a low level I want the Fed to administer what is the right level. And the right level, probably right now, is at an overnight lending rate, 3% is too high Mm -hmm. for the natural rate in the economy. But 0% is most certainly too low. And so you have to have a number. I'm I'm not one of these people that's anti-Central Bank. I think you need a lender of last resort. Okay, but because the Fed has decided one of their objectives is to smooth out the business cycle, it's put them in a position where the manipulation of the interest rate is the policy tool, and that cannot be done without malinvestment. And so the cost, as you say, of excessively low interest rates is uh, egregious. Now, we had a financial crisis and an overly levered household sector. We right now have an overly levered government sector. We, You could argue have an overly levered um, a corporate economy, okay? Junk bonds right now trade for about 4% yield. Mm -hmm. That's where the United States government was 10 years ago. This Mm -hmm. is not good. It misprices risk. And as you know, price discovery is the sin qua non of an effective free market. So I think all these things are dangerous. But I won't join the chorus of people saying, ergo, the Fed's going to ruin the world. Because I think it happens with a whimper, not a bang. It creates malinvestment. It creates certain distortions. They take a lot of time to work their way through mostly it exacerbates a boom-bust cycle. You end up getting bubbles. They end up bursting. Uh, And then what do you treat the bubble with? It's a hair-of-the-dog economics. You have to give more, more, more morphine to the hurting patient. And that's what the diminishing return and deflationary pressure is of saying, well, now we need more fiscal policy and more monetary policy to deal with the aftermath of the last explosion of fiscal and monetary policy we tried. Um, we're just sort of living in the psycho right now.
0: And I would argue it also gives us much worse politics. But again, that will have to be continued Thanks. to another time. David Bonson, always a pleasure to have you here. Um, I think the correct answer to how this will end is with the living envying the dead, but we can talk about that um on our eschatological episode. Um uh if people don't listen to it, if people are if, if people are truly intrigued by all of the of this last third of the podcast, you really have to listen to um uh, capital record, his podcast. And, uh, David, thanks again. Great seeing you, my friend.
1: Well, it's good to see you. I look forward to seeing you in person again. And thanks so much for having me back on. I love being with you.
0: Okay. So David has left the studio. Um, it was great to catch up. Um, I, I like a lot of that financial stuff and I think it's really interesting. It just, that it's, uh, uh, maybe it's just, it, 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 it taxes my learning curve. So I like it and I like listening to him talk, but it'll be interesting to see again, um, what some of the listeners, uh, thought of all of that, uh, David's become a quite a hot, hot commodity in podcast world of late. He had a great episode on commentary recently. Um, and other than that, I don't have too much to report. Uh, my daughter's high school graduation was, uh, delightful and, um, and bittersweet and all of those other things, but I'll save that for another time and um and i'm sorry to everybody for missing the friday g file but i think it was a pretty good excuse and um and i will uh i will save my other uh various and sundry comments for another time as well because i'm trying to keep this thing uh to time so uh beyond that i'll just see you next time no you won't this is a podcast